Hello and a uh, very warm welcome to everybody who's joining us for this uh, promising uh, webinar uh, from around the world. Uh, we have a special lineup, uh, four renowned political economists of the Middle East talking about a new book, which is out as part of the Routledge uh, Political Economy of the Middle East and North Africa uh, series, which uh, I edit. Um, this event is hosted by the LSE Middle East Center, and it's my distinct pleasure to say that uh, it also marks uh, the beginning of uh, new cooperation between LSE Middle East Center and my own home department here in Doha, Qatar. Uh, my name is Hassan Hakimian. I'm director of the Middle Eastern Studies Department at the College of uh, Humanities Social Sciences, which is part of HBKU Hamad Ben Khalifa University. Um, this month is also, uh, in a way, anniversary of the setting up uh, of the LSE Middle East Center, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 11 years back. I had the distinct pleasure of chairing the launch event for uh, the Middle East uh, Center at the LSE itself. And it's very impressive to see how the center has uh, grown uh, and diversified and contributed to putting uh, Middle Eastern studies uh, in uh, a very uh, impressive interdisciplinary fashion on the academic map. On a personal note, I'm also a SOAS, uh, I'm a, an LSE uh, alum. Uh, I did my undergraduate uh, economics, so I uh, associate my economics with what I learned in LSE, unfor unforgettable years. Anyway, I know that uh, you are all here to listen to our speakers. Uh, the book we are launching tonight, Tunisia's Economic Development, Why Better Than Most of the Middle East But Not East Asia, is uh, authored, co-authored by two uh, very senior uh, economists, Mustafa Nabli and Jeffrey Nugent. And by the way, I should point out that this session is being recorded. And uh, we will uh, proceed as follows. Uh, Mustafa and Jeff will introduce the book. Uh, and then uh, uh, two other colleagues, uh, Professor Leila Baghdadi and Mohammed Ali Marwani, will then uh, offer their thoughts by way of discussion. And we will then uh, open up to uh, Q&A. And uh, you can uh, write your questions in the Q&A section, uh, which appears at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And I will do my best to draw on some of the questions uh, and time permitting, we'll try and do my best to address as many as, as, many as we can. So let me, without further ado, uh, go on to give a very short introduction to our uh, speakers, uh, the two authors. Uh, I have a very easy task because they're both very well-known uh, academic economists and practicing, practicing economists. Mustafa Nabli has been professor of economics at the University of Tunis, chairman of the Tunis Stock Exchange, Minister of Planning, Regional and Economic Development in the government of Tunisia. He was also chief economist and director of the Social and Economic Development Department for the Middle East and North Africa region at the World Bank, and uh, more recently, governor of the Central Bank of Tunisia. Uh, Jeffrey Nugent is a professor of economics 
at the University of uh, Southern California in the US. He's worked on and in various countries of both the MENA and East Asian regions, including the United Nations, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. He's served on uh, the boards of both the uh, Economic Research Forum, which is based in Cairo, ERF, and as president of the Middle East Economic Association, MIA. Uh, he has a long list of books, uh, which I'm not going to read, but with, uh, it suffice it to say that uh, Jeff and uh, Mustafa have co-authored this book on a topic which is uh, of tremendous interest, not least because Tunisia's economic development often maybe is overshadowed by discussions and focus on political developments, especially in the last decade. Now is a good time to take a critical look at why the Tunisian economic development is rather unique, both looked at from the perspective of the MENA region, but also in its relationship to or in contrast with the experience of East Asian economies. And to talk on that very topic, who better than uh, Professor Mustafa Nabli and Professor Jeff Nugent. So Mustafa, if I can invite you to please uh, take over and the floor is yours. Thank you, Hassan. And uh, thanks for promoting this event and thanks to the Middle East Center for uh, hosting us. Uh, it's really a great pleasure to be able to uh, talk to you today and uh, try to present uh, this, uh, this book. Uh, this book has been long in the making, so I'm not gonna explain, it has been many, many years of work and uh, effort. So uh, the history is, is very long, I would not take time. So uh, let me uh, start by showing the PowerPoint presentation. I have a few slides to share with you. And, uh, and uh, this, is, um, this is the slides. Uh, let me share the full screen so that you can see my slides. Okay, now, uh, this book, as Hassan said, is, is uh, Tunisia's economic development, why better than most of the Middle East and not East Asia. This has been uh, the, uh, this, this is the, 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 the cover of the book. I'm not gonna spend time with it. So uh, what is special about this book? Uh, we, we are trying to take a long-term perspective. We are looking at uh, the last 60 years or more, uh, years of development in Tunisia, in the Middle East and East Asia. Uh, we try to cover a broad range of topics. Uh, we draw on the large literature, uh, data, and as well as references. Uh, as Jeff likes to say, it's like uh, trying to look at the uh, reasons behind the uh, what we call the paradox or the uh, puzzle of Tunisia. It's like looking for a needle in the haystack. Uh, so uh, we try to compare Tunisia to the experience of uh, Middle East uh, and North Africa countries. We group them in three groups of countries, uh, the non-major oil exporting countries, the GCC countries, and the non-GCC and uh, oil exporting countries. And uh, the other group is the uh, uh, sample of six East Asian countries, uh, including China, Indonesia, Korea, Malaysia, Philippines, and Thailand. And uh, in this comparative perspective, we cover a broad range of indicators and themes. We'll try to uh, you know, mention a few of them. And we use a variety of methods and data sources 
both at the micro and macro level to uh, to make our case. Now, uh, just a very brush, very broad brush of the of, of the book, which is uh, in seven chapters, and uh, the argument that we make is made in three stages. Uh, I'll try to explain. We start uh, with a broad ranging comparison of long-term development outcomes using a broad range of indicators, poverty, uh, human development, uh, growth, GDP, and other, um, and other indicators, as well as the performance in terms of economic growth and structural transformation and productivity growth. That's what we do, like the broad range of things in chapters one and two. We go on in chapter three to explain how Tunisia got uh, a good start in the 60s and 70s and try to explain the changes that were introduced in policies and strategies in the following decades in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, uh, and uh, 2010s. Uh, there, the, our argument starts really in chapter four, where we set the stage in the, the first stage of our arguments. We have two chapters in stage one. We explain how Tunisia was successful relative to most other Middle Eastern countries and North African countries and we identify seven factors which explain the relative success of Tunisia compared to those countries. Then in uh, chapter five, we try to uh, set the stage for understanding why the success of Tunisia in the economic area was less than East Asia. And we identify also seven major different factors uh, that explain that. So that was the first stage of, uh, of the argument. The second stage, we go deeper and try to understand what is behind uh, the factors that explain why Tunisia was not as successful as East Asia. And the major uh, two factors that we identify are the continued heavy state of the state and the relatively weak private sector development in Tunisia compared to East Asian countries, successful East Asian countries. So uh, in chapter seven, we, uh, we try to spend some time reviewing the most recent events in Tunisia in 2010s, since the uh, so-called uprisings and Arab Spring, and try to explain why it has failed and led to the economic collapse of Tunisia recently, which is not unrelated to the weaknesses that we have, we have identified earlier. In the last stage, in chapter eight, we find, uh, we provide some conclusions and identify the fundamental factors which were responsible for Tunisia's failure to maintain its early growth and transform uh, itself into a more uh, developed country. Now, uh, in the rest of this presentation, I will focus on one main issue that we deal in the, in the, uh, with in the book, which is the paradox of Tunisia versus East Asia. Uh, the paradox or the puzzle is the following. Uh, Tunisia has been successful in, on many, many fronts in terms of uh, development outcomes, in terms of human development, poverty reduction, uh, even structural transformation, and so on and so on. However, on the other hand, Tunisia has failed quite systematically in terms of economic growth and structural transformation. So this has been called a paradox somehow not understanding why this success on one hand, this very good success on one hand and very major failures on the other hand 
And that's really uh, what we'll try to sketch very briefly in my presentation today. The major similarities that we have identified and we explain and, and develop uh, you know, extensively in the book are the poverty reduction, tremendous reduction in poverty in Tunisia, uh, major achievements in terms of human capital education and health and, and um, education, uh, life expectancy and so on. At the same time, we've noticed that in, in terms of policies, there are major, major similarities between East Asia and Tunisia in terms of the, of the role of developmental state, macroeconomic stability, export orientation, role of FDI, uh, role of manufacturing growth, financial development, and so on. But at the same time, we determine, we show that there are major differences in terms of growth outcomes and structural transformation. Uh, in terms of the weak labor dynamics, means low employment rates, high unemployment rates, and in terms of lagging gender equity, in terms of low female labor force participation, high unemployment rates for women. So this is kind of the paradox or the uh, puzzle of Tunisia and trying to understand why. And uh, in the first stage or the second stage of our argument, we, we, we determined that there are really five major differences in terms of um, explain the difference in the difference of outcomes in terms of economic growth and transformation. Tunisia had much lower rates of savings and physical capital accumulation than East Asian successful countries. By the end of the, of the day, while Tunisia used the global markets to leverage its development and has been quite relatively successful in terms of comparing to MENA, it has been, it has been not sufficiently successful compared to East Asian countries. We noticed also uh, their skills mismatches and inefficient utilization of human capital that has been grown and developed in Tunisia compared to East Asia. We have noticed weaker the technological progress and technology transfer in Tunisia compared to East Asia. We have noticed also, we found that mixed success in financial development and weak fiscal capacity. These are the six or, or uh, main, uh, there, there is one or two others which I don't want to spend time on. Now, when we go to the second stage of our argument, we try to explain why this difference, why Tunisia did not succeed in terms of high levels of savings, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, better use of human capital, in terms of uh, better technological transfer and so on. And we determined and uh, our analysis and the work show that really there are two major differences which explain the above. One is the continued heavy state of the sta uh, in, in Tunisia compared to East Asia. The states played a role, strong role in Tunisia like in East Asia as a developmental state in 60s and 70s. But while East Asia started to change course significantly later on, Tunisia continued to follow policies that are biased against markets and in favor of state intervention. It's the balance. It's not really one or the other, but it's really the balance that has been gotten wrong in Tunisia and was not fixed. Uh, the state sector continued to play a large role in, in, in Tunisia, uh, whether it is in infrastructure, in energy and mining, transportation, education, everywhere. Tunisian state continued to be very heavy. Uh, pervasiveness of regulations, of restrictions, distortions in almost all activities. 
limitations to entry, uh, constraints on operation, controls of prices, large scale subsidies, uh, you know, distortion in terms of access to resources and so on. So this is a major differences with East Asia, which has heavily uh, been dependent on the markets and promoting the markets. The second and related event, uh, you know, thing was the weaknesses in terms of developing the private sector in Tunisia compared to East Asia. Just to give you two, two figures, the rate of gross fixed capital formation GDP averaged in the 90s, 13 or 14 percent of GDP. It's almost half the rate in East Asia, which was about 25% on average during this period. Uh, the private sector share in global fixed capital formation was about 55% in Tunisia in the same period, compared to 80% in, in, in uh, East Asia. This shows the very different scope of expansion of the private sector in East Asia compared to Tunisia. While Tunisian private sector emerged during the 70s, after the reforms of the 70s, its role in imports remained constrained. Uh, it continued to be closely linked to the state. Rent-seeking you know, continued to be dominant. There remained constraints on entrepreneurship and innovation, and the business environment remained to be very difficult uh, in many, many, many ways. So, uh, Broadly speaking, but the next stage is why? Why this Tunisia remains stuck in this heavy state of the state and weak private sector? And uh, our third stage of the argument is that we think the deeper causes are that the political equilibrium was you know, such that it resulted in this impact. Why? Because the political system uh, became stuck and the status quo prevailed. Uh, the beneficiary and the main stakeholders of the existing system uh, did not go along with its reform, whether it's the labor unions, the dominant private sector who did not really want reform. Democracy became, became, uh, remained dominant. The political regime was risk averse and discounted change and reform. Rents and rent seeking continued to sustain the political system as a whole. And the, while the losers were unable to induce change, they were weak and not enough, strong enough to change, whether it's the new and dynamic entrepreneurs, whether it's the innovators or the unemployed youth, which were paying a heavy price, all these new losers really were not able to organize and, and induce change. And really the role of this status quo really became even more apparent. And that's our, our discussion in chapter seven in the post-2011 uprisings and this dismal failure of Tunisia to change and even to succeed in its democratic transition, uh, this really confirms our diagnostic of the, really the status quo remains to be dominant up to this, to this day. Uh, to conclude, we end with in chapter seven, trying to uh, really uh, try to what was wrong. And we think that there are three really major reasons, fundamental reasons, which explain the lack of success in Tunisia, which is the loss of political leadership, the early leadership of the 60s and 70s of Bourguiba and the strong vision, developmental vision and uh, transformation of society 
this political vision has been lost and there has not been any vision of political leadership for the last few decades. We think that the neighborhood effect plays a role in East Asia. Uh, the dynamism of East Asia was not present in the Middle East and North Africa. It did not support any uh, growth or uh, advance in Tunisia. And the last is really the political equilibrium which led to the middle income trap due to the political economy failures, uh, limited adaptation and slow reforms, uh, prevalence of resistance change, and offerings of innovation overall. And I think this is really the story. So we come in a way very much along the lines of the recent work of um, Jim Robinson and Asimoglu about you know, the role of political institutions in determining the success of nations in growth. It's really what we, we end up really uh, message we are sending is that what we find is very much akin and similar to what Jared, uh, Jim and, and uh, Darren Asimoglu developed in those two books actually on the success of nations. And uh, I will stop here. Thank you. Okay. Could I just add a few words? Please, uh, the floor is yours. Most of us, you can help me with the thing. So first, let me just say, I don't, we, I, I couldn't find the uh, a, a good copy of it, but in chapter seven that Mustafa was mentioning, uh, there was, uh, we're just showing how Tunisia has fallen way behind. There's a table 7.2. We don't, I don't, wasn't able to get a, a copy for this presentation, but this is one, this is again, the micro level where based on the enterprise surveys of the World Bank, where they ask each firm among a whole bunch of questions, but among other things, what are the different obstacles to their business? A whole bunch of obstacles about access to electricity, transportation, problems of customs, corruption, uh, access to finance and all those, all those kinds of things. So the interesting thing in that table, we show that the extent of the obstacles, of each of those obstacles went up very significantly between 2013, the first of the enterprise surveys for Tunisia, and then the most recent one, 2020. So the, the seriousness of the obstacles to the firm. So the firm's are feeling much, much more pressure about problems. And, and all of them, not just one or two of them went up, but they all went up. And the other thing that's significant about it is that, so the, the, the seriousness of the obstacles were ranked from zero to four. Uh, four being, you know, it's extremely serious uh, obstacle. So it, it hardly in any country would you find uh, it going up to four. But the average of, of the, what the firms say in Tunisia is uh, in 2020 went up to about 2,000, uh, 2.5 for a number of these obstacles. And all of them went up, but some went as high as 2.5 out of the four, which is pretty serious. And, and, and so it's so many obstacles that have increased over this period of time compared to the other country, it's about double what the, the same kind of answers to the same kind of questions that you find in other, the average of countries around the world where the enterprise surveys have been done. So Tunisia stands out in that respect. But the final point here is the acknowledgements. We so much thank the 
encouragement of Hassan Akimian and the members of his board of the Routledge uh, Political Economy Middle East and North Africa series that we're happy to be part of. Uh, we appreciated their comments on earlier drafts, uh, as well as uh, comments we got from an early conference you, you, at University of California, San Diego in 2008. And, and we also appreciate our long going, ongoing interactions over time with uh, colleagues at the Economic Research Forum and the Middle East and Ec Economic Association. Thank you. Thank you very much both uh, for this very succinct uh, summary of a uh, fascinating book. Since you mentioned acknowledgements, I was going to save my thanks to the end, but uh, I must mention the support that we've had uh, from uh, Mr. Peter Soden, who is the Routledge editor of the series. Uh, the series, uh, Routledge Political Economy of Middle East North Africa series was uh, established in 2003 when I was at SOAS and it has been going strong. Uh, we've had uh, 16 volumes with emphasis on quality, uh, selection of a range of topics. I'm very proud of this uh, as the latest uh, book in the series which is out, and we have another one coming out uh, also through collaboration with colleagues on the ERF Economic Research Forum. So I hope to be able to uh, launch that book uh, before long as it is in its final stages of uh, publication. Okay, let me, without further ado, uh, say a few words by way of introduction about our uh, two discussants. Uh, Professor Leila Baghdadi is of uh, ESSEC, uh, University of Tunis, where she holds the World Trade Organization Chair. She's an executive board member of the Central Bank of Tunisia since 2019. She was appointed as a member of the Tunisian Council of Economic Analysis reporting to the Chief of Government from November 2017 to February 21. Leila is a research fellow and a member of the Board of Trustees of the Economic Research Forum, ERF, which was mentioned before. Um, and she's uh, also an associate editor of uh, the Middle East Development Journal published by ERF. Her research interests focus on international economics. She'll speak first. And let me also take this opportunity to introduce uh, our second discussant, uh, Mohammed, uh, Mohammed Ali Marwani is Associate Professor in Economics at the Sorbonne Institute of Development Studies and is currently on leave as resident representative of the Institute of Research for Development, IRD, in Tunisia. He's research fellow of the Economic Research Forum, so you can see this is a close uh, network, ERF, and of the Migration Institute, a member of the advisory group of the African Evidence Network. His research focuses on structural change, migration, and the socioeconomic impact of crisis in the MENA region. Both uh, uh, discussants are eminent experts on the Tunisian economy, so we are very fortunate to have them as our discussants. Leila, over to you, and then Mohammed, you can follow after Leila. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Hakimian. Thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be virtually with you today. Um, to discuss this uh, seminal book uh, by Nabi and Nugent um, with a title that will not make us indifferent, um, a very attractive title. Um, this is a must read for, for anyone uh, interested by the recent economic history of Tunisia, 
The book is very well documented, uh, presenting a long list of references from international scholars as well, locally based scholars. Um, they were, these references were put into context to lay down the story of a country um, that got into its independence um, since of five to six decades. Um, this is very useful, as I said, to, to scholars, but also to wider uh, audience. Then uh, this book tells us the story of post-independence country that tried hard to become a developed one, eventually did better than fellow Middle East countries, but failed to graduate to become an advanced country such as uh, East Asian economies. The authors clearly um, identified the reasons of this relative success of Tunisia in, in long-term growth, uh, thanks to intensive reforms done as a young state in its first two decades. But in the last two to three decades, it was not capable uh, to do so. And they were asking, which is, I think it's very interesting, why this was not possible. Um, actually, as was, it was presented by uh, Dr. Nebli, actually Tunisia has all the symptoms of middle income uh, trap, um, such as limited structural transformation, etc. Something they wrote in the, in the book, I find it very um, interesting. It's a citation by Aguillon et al. in 2021, who argues that countries are most likely to get stuck in um, uh, middle income trap trap when they fail to adapt their institution in such a way to move from a catch-up model to an innovation-based model. And my comments will be around this, uh, actually, the failure to, to go or to, to adapt to innovation-based model. First example of a failure stated, in the, of course, in the book, in several chapters, the two-track system implemented by Tunisia in, with the law, the 72 law, with incentives to solely exporting firms with hopes that the country will create its own table, Korea's large industrial groups. Then, with the idea that these firms eventually will become vertically integrated group and will become locomotive to the country and tap into global markets and will lead the structural transformation. This was described in several chapters, particularly in chapter six, where they speak about the success and the failure, but actually their, their reality turned out different for Tunisia, different from Korea. Exports have grown in Tunisia. It almost doubled from 2000 to 2010. However, it is not large vertically integrated firms that export the, bulks of the bulk of Tunisia's uh, good. Instead, a large part of the country's manufacturing exports are produced by offshore firms or export assembly plants, which import inputs from abroad um, or process the inputs into final outputs and then re-export again the finished goods. Tunisia's failure to graduate from export assembly has left, left it exposed to the emergence of new, um, new countries with higher comparative advantage a low-skilled labor, for instance, the emergence of China um, during and and the, since the since China joined the WTO, 
you know, uh, Tunisia paid, uh, paid the, the, the period, it's, it's paid the, the emergence of China and cannot compete like countries um, like China. And um, actually, it, it increases the vulnerability of the country to external shock. This is an example of not responding to innovation-based incentives, but there is another example. For instance, the government drafted each, silver, uh, each uh, five years a plan for, uh, for um, the industry, for the development in the country. However, all these plans, the last one was before 2010 and was never implemented. However, this plan always um, lacked the high-level leadership commitment to innovation. Uh, as a motor of structural transformation uh, of the country. And this is really a second example of the lack of commitment of Tunisia to innovation differently from East Asia. There is a lack of recognition of the role of mission-oriented policies, a term coined by Mazzucato. Um, Tunisia developed all this, the ecosystem, all the policies, stable macroeconomic uh, policies, uh, the, the banking system, the monetary system, uh, the workforce. However, it failed to lay down big innovation goals that all these policies will turn to and that will transform the country, uh, the country structural. We can't find them, at least it's not clear to me. We also acknowledge the problem of governance of innovation in the country. Um, and it is translated by the national system of innovation compared to Asian countries. Contrary to this country, there is lack um, of recognition in the highest sphere of leadership. But all the efforts of innovation that were made in the country, they are fragmented, isolated, and uh, the governance, it's, it's really different from uh, South Korea. Third illustration that could explain this lack of commitment to innovation is the historical fabric of institution in Tunisia. The authors highlighted the resistance to change and special interest of blockage reforms. In, in chapter six, the deep roots of this institution in Tunisia, they are first extractive institution. Extractive economic institutions and propelled by extractive political institutions. And they are tightly linked to the history of the country. The book very nicely speaks about the historical development of Tunisia and the emergence of institutions that favored the development of the country. But also, maybe didn't speak also about the fabric of these extractive institutions that maybe were even more deepened with the history of colonization. Uh, in the country. Then this fabric itself, extractive industries, the survival of this institution needs to block innovation. Otherwise, it will put into risk this kind of institution and elite, either political or private. I will end up with the last point, which is, um, which is the role of the belief system in fostering innovation policies in the country. The window of democracy, and it was discussed in chapter, I think, seven, uh, open it, and it is at risk right now of uh, closing definitively. Um, but this open and dynamic society that democracy could open up actually could foster a society favorable to innovation instead of society totally blocked and closed. Of course, democracy 
processes imply losers in the short uh, run. And this, I think, it's nicely, nicely um, shown by Table 7.4, where it shows that under dictatorship, Tunisians were happier than under democracy. I think we need, um, we need to follow up to monitor the transformation of beliefs in Tunisia and for, for Tunisia during the last, the, the next years in order to see, to determine or to forecast or to guess if actually the country will be endowed of a new state of mind to properly implement innovation-based policies in the next decade. Thank you. And sorry for, for the time. I think I took, my, I took much time then. Uh, Mohamed, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Mohamed, over to you, please. Thank you very much, Hassan, for the invitation. Uh, as Leila said, this is really a fascinating subject and a fascinating book, and I think it can be the basis of economic reforms in Tunisia and in the MENA region. Uh, it has academic and policy relevance, and the long-term perspective taken is really helpful. So the, the, the book posed the diagnostics uh, and analyzed the mechanism behind, and this is what I really like, is the mechanism the deep roots, uh, the book is dense. Uh, every idea is documented and not just with data, but also with analyse, lots of analysis, process data. And we find uh, different fields of economics, such as industrial policy, political economy. And above all of this, there is a story. And this is what I really like in the book is, it's an academic book, but it has really a story that any reader can read and understand what happened in Tunisia in the last six decades. So the diagnostic is that Tunisia did better than most of MENA, but worse than East Asia in terms of growth, structural transformation, diversification, technical upgrading, and employment. The way I will present my, uh, my uh, the way I will present my my analysis is to do it in very simple way. Take what are Tunisia's advantages and what are its shortcomings, and every time share into what are the endowments. I mean, what came from Tunisia before independence, I call this part the endowments, and what are the choices of post-independence Tunisia? So for the uh, advantages and the shortcomings. So I will start with the advantages and among the endowments, the first one, uh, very clear in the book is leaders and state capacity. So uh, it's very important to mobilize revenue for public goods. And here, uh, I like very much the chapter that talks about the cultural heritage and state capacity in Tunisia in the historical perspective. Uh, this is something really very enriching because we go outside economics and it confirms what we, we can find in other books as the book of Jared Rubin on why the West got rich and the Middle East did not, where he shows, for example, that Tunis was one of the most populated cities uh, in the world for at least 10 centuries which means that Tunis was a rich city and this has its importance. But also if we look at history, for example, the contribution of Andalusians who brought uh, irrigation techniques, craftsmanships, but also contributed to the urbanization of the country and its state capacities. So these kind of uh, historical elements make Tunisia a special country. And a lot of things that we may see today come from this and high education is among these factors. Uh, since the 19th century, there has been, for example, the Collège Sadiki, founded in 1875 by Khairuddin, the big reformer of Tunisia. And this uh, Collège Sadiki, uh, most of the Tunisian elite that participated to independence studied in this college. So there is this basic endowment of education, which Bourguiba invested uh, uh, 
and the, the, the governments afterwards continued higher level of investment in human capital. So I think this is one of the main characteristics of Tunisia. The second one is mainstreaming social protection and inclusion. I think this explains really the stability and cohesion of the country over the, the last decades, much more than the Ministry of Interior's efforts. Uh, gender inequality scores, high gender inequality scores, of course, as well. Uh, then there is a point which is raised by the book about the role of manufacturing in fostering growth. I think uh, that uh, manufacturing also uh, did a very important role in the reduction of inequality and in the emergence of middle class and particularly gender inequality. If we think about the maids that became uh, employees of factories in Tunisia, we see very clear change with, uh, in, the, in the 70s with the development of the offshore system and the creation of the manufacturing sector. Um, in the book, the author said Tunisia was, uh, didn't succeed in budgetary policy because the, the budget was all, all the time. But here, I find it a kind of external consistency critique because if you look at the objective of the government, actually all, with all the objectives the governments had and maybe the, the meager resources, maybe they, they reached the objective, but from outside, of course, it's, it's a weakness if we look at other objectives. Now, if we turn to Tunisia's disadvantages, the first one is the size of the country. It's a small country. It means small uh, economy, uh, of course, not always the case, but often so small market and uh, and in Tunisia, small firms, but it's not the only reason the small country, small firms, of course. And the neighborhood effect, Mustafa Nebli talked about uh, the effect of the other countries in terms of uh, economic uh, impact they could have. But there is also, I think, um, uh, following the neighbors. And here, if you have neighbors that are non-reformers, Maybe uh, you're not very motivated, while in other countries you have, uh, you see Japan, you see Korea, you have, you always have these models. In Tunisia, maybe we didn't have the model. And at the same time, maybe Tunisia was kind of the model in the region. Another interesting point um, where I have, uh, one of the few points where I have, uh, and there aren't many, uh, where I have a different opinion than the others is about the homogeneity of the population. So they, they present it as an advantage. I personally think, and I'm more inclined to think, like, for example, Galore in his new book, The Journey of Humanity, that diversity is a factor of innovation. So uh, the contribution of minorities has always been key in government business knowledge. So I think it's a disadvantage to have homogene homogeneous uh, countries. And if you look at empires, the free circulation of talents, for example, uh, we see that... Uh, we see that it was always positive. And for example, in Malaysia, the Chinese community is clearly, and it's cited in the book, had a very uh, important impact on the Malaysian economy, for example. Uh, now, if we turn to the first period of post-independence where um, the failure is analyzed, economic failure, I think one of the most important reasons, and maybe uh, it's not uh, talked about uh, enough, is the absence of entrepreneur. Uh, I found once a census of 1951, I think, saying that 88% of firms in Tunisia at the time were belonging to French. So when the French left, there were just 12% of entrepreneurs still available. And uh, maybe many of them left in the 60s. So the, the entrepreneurship, it's not just about capital and, uh, and, human, and uh, human capital and physical capital. Uh, now, if I turn to policies, uh, education, I think, Tunisia invested a lot, but 
the choice at some point of a dual system, I think was one of the major weaknesses. With this uh, dual system, you have from one side, the, the pilot high schools for the best one, and then they go to the engineering school and to the faculty of medicine. And for the vast majority of the rest, it's low quality as attested, as you say in the book, rightly uh, by the low score in PISA. So with this dual system, and the problem of this dual system is that the best of the best are exported, the, the human capital, the best of the best, and Tunisia does not open its border to attract foreign human capitals. This is for me is really an important problem. It's not just Tunisia. It happens in many developing countries. They just try to go in other countries, but they don't open to any other countries. And the, in the book, the, what is said rightly that the absence of foreign university and think tanks, I think it's the same idea is that if you want innovation, you need to open up to ideas and you need to open up to, to, to new minds. And uh, uh, so uh, it's probably one of the, the, the explanations of the, of the low innovation you see in the country. Uh, other points cited very interesting in the book, inefficient industrial policy, no land reforms. About low savings, I would like to ask you, uh, so it's right to say it's mainly low corporate savings, but what could have done Tunisia better? Because in, in uh, for example, in Korea or in other countries, it was, uh, there was very low wages, I think at the beginning, at least big markets. So in Tunisia, what Tunisia could have done to have more corporate saving, it's not very easy for me to, to know that. And then there is all this part on authoritarian regime, which I like a lot. And the best part, and maybe no one talked about it today, but is that the business association were inefficient in gathering information because these business association, and it's the same for the agricultural trade unions and even for the labor union at some part, most of the time it was not the case, but some part, the authoritarian regime when takes over the association, this association cannot anymore play their roles in gathering the information, gathering the technology. They become just agents of the system. And so they, they became totally inefficient, while in Southeast Asia, it's totally different. Uh, well, many other points, but I will not, I will just conclude with a few points. In the revolution period, I think one of the most important aspects was the issue of expectations. Uh, and the government was not able to reply, so it just replied by employment in the public sector. Uh, and we, we did work with some colleagues on the impact of the revolution on wage inequality, and the dynamics of the public sector are really important to understand what happened. So here we see the, the role of the state in a, in a different way. Uh, to conclude, just one point I think uh, that is really, really important in the next uh, is climate change. So climate change is not just a concept. In Tunisia, it's water. And Tunisia is one of the poorest countries in the world in terms of water. So I think the way of governing the country needs really to take into account this aspect. It will totally change everything we do today. And to finish with the positive point, maybe still, despite all the negative points we can see, there is dynamism in the Tunisian society, at least in the research community with whom I'm personally working, and also in the startup ecosystem, as we can see uh, a few successes recently that many of you must have heard. So there are still some positive sides. And thank you very much. Well, thank you both for very insightful comments. Uh, this is a very rich topic, uh, a very rich book. And uh, the discussion has also likewise uh, helped uh, shed new light uh, on uh, the strength of the book and uh, what other areas in relation to 
Tunisia's economic development we should or we can focus on. Uh, can I encourage everyone who has a question to type their questions in the Q&A section? Meanwhile, maybe Mustafa, one thing I liked about the book, and of course there were many things, uh, I was very happy to see the framework uh, for explaining growth uh, that uh, was developed by the World Bank Commission on Growth and Development in 2008, headed by the Nobel laureate Mike Spence, which of course coincided with your own period uh, as the chief economist uh, in the World Bank. I happened to do the Iran case study, and this was a big effort actually to try and explain or shed new light on our understanding of the process of economic growth and success of uh, uh, economic growth in some countries. Uh, and, and you highlight uh, what I find very interesting, both initial conditions, the structural transformation, but also the seven factors that explain how outcomes um, can be explained in fast growing countries uh, uh, and not just focusing on policies, which, which I find to some extent is a tendency within the economic profession. When we want to explain outcomes, we kind of overemphasize the role of policies. Policies are important, but within the wider framework. Uh, and I thought uh, this commission's report, which uh, I thought it was very enlightening, unfortunately was somehow, in my view, uh, foreshadowed by the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009. Otherwise, I'm sure it would have made more, more, more of an impact. I certainly use it in my uh, reading list and so on. So I was very happy to see this, the, the, the framework, uh, and at least the ingredients um, addressed directly in, in your methodological framework. Uh, so over to you, maybe some, some uh, reactions uh, to our discussions, and I will uh, uh, come back with the questions that now we have on the Q&A in a moment. Uh, Jeff, do you want to come in? Or do you want to I, I actually had a little trouble hearing Layla's uh, nice comments, so I, I'll maybe skip, let you deal with hers, and maybe I could say a few words about Mohammed's. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Hassan. On the Growth Commission, Hassan, you're absolutely right. I, I, I thought the uh, Commission's work was, was really useful, and I, I think we have tried to use it. Actually, the Growth Commission emphasized a lot the issue of vision and, uh, and how the vision in East Asia played a major role in uh, explaining the uh, dynamics of policy and how policies were shaped by vision. And uh, that's why we uh, emphasize that point uh, as one of the main factors, which after the success of the 60s and 70s, which all of the difficulties in 60s were a complicated uh, matter in Tunisia. But overall, all of the data now, when we look back, show the huge, uh, you know, transformation, growth, and all the human development, poverty reduction. And all of this is really the 60s and 70s. And uh, the vision was really central to that success, actually. And Tunisia lost that since the 80s. Since the 80s, there has been no grand visions for Tunisia. And what has been really missing is that vision which drives the reforms, which uh, brings societies together towards a better, uh, a better um, you know, uh, framework and a better outcome. And uh, on the other hand, I think the Growth Commission I think did not go into the, uh, what I call the stage three of our argument, which is really going into the political economy 
dimension, which explains why it got stuck. So in addition to the lack of vision, actually the political economy got stuck also in this uh, low equilibrium and the status quo equilibrium. And I think the Growth Commission did not go into that for, for many reasons. And I think uh, it's, it's important to, to notice that. Uh, thanks to Leila and Mohamed Ali, I think uh, very, very useful comments and very interesting points. Uh, uh, I think the point by Leila about the uh, extractive institutions is, is quite interesting, actually, I think is, is interesting. Um, uh, I have to think about it more. I, I did not really uh, think uh, that the extractive institutions continued after independence because one of the works of Borghibo was that he destroyed this institution. He tried at least, and I think he succeeded to a large extent to destroy these extractive institutions and to build new institutions. I think that's one of the legacies of Borghibo, actually, I think. And uh, I'm not sure I see uh, extractive institutions coming from the colonial period, which continued uh, afterwards, uh, which played a major, but, but that's maybe something that we need to discuss more and maybe you, you are right, but I'm not sure I see that as a major, uh, a major issue uh, in Tunisia, but maybe I'm wrong on that one. On uh, the uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, I think uh, the issue of homogeneity is interesting. I think you're, you're uh, I think I, I know the, um, I'm not sure we are talking about the same issue of homogeneity. I think Galor and his views about uh, uh, it's really very long term, uh, you know, lack of homogeneity in terms of different kinds of people that have different characteristics and so on. I think what we are focusing on is really the issue of homogeneity in terms of when we compare to the conflict at the, at the countries which are conflict stricken. Uh, countries where uh, the lack of homogeneity and fragmentation of societies leads to conflict, political conflict, which has been a major factor in Africa and most of Africa uh, in terms of not allowing these countries to develop and to build any uh, new uh, dynamism. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think uh, that being said, I don't think that within that uh, there is no uh, lack of diversity in Tunisia. There is a lot of diversity, even with that homogeneity of the population. There is a lot of diversity, which is which is helpful in terms of the dynamism that you have been talking about in terms of the innovation and and so on. I think one of the striking different you know issues in Tunisia, as you said, dynamism in the last ten years since uprising is is in the cultural area. In culture, in the cultural domain, there is a lot of dynamism, uh, which is uh, innovation and so on, which is is really amazing. Uh, so, now the last question I think that we raised, and I don't think I have a satisfactory answer to that, about savings. What could Tunisia have done to have higher savings rate than? Actually, Tunisia succeeded in having relatively high savings rate. Tunisia was had savings rates which went to up to 24, 25% in the 60s and 70s, but they went down to 20, 21% in the 80s and 90s. Okay, so the savings rates compared to many countries in the region are high. I mean, Egypt is 15% and, and even Turkey is 15% savings rate. So Tunisia had relatively high savings rate, but compared to East Asia, compared to China or Korea and so on is very low. 
China is now is, is the 40% of GDP. Now, I'm not, we are not suggesting that Tunisia could have, should have gone into 40% savings rate. I'm not sure this is a good, a good policy outcome. But I think it could have aimed at higher savings rate, like 30% or something like that. Now, how could it have achieved that? I think the, 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 uh, the critical point, I think, my, my view is that savings rate depends really on the expectations of growth. Since Tunisia did not succeed in building strong growth expectations, it did not succeed in stimulating corporate savings. And we have seen it the last 10 years. The last 10 years, corporate savings have collapsed because growth expectations have collapsed in Tunisia. Savings rate for those who don't know Tunisia in the last 10 years, savings rates have gone down to 5%, 16% of GDP in Tunisia from 20, 21% before the uprisings. And the major driver of this is the collapse of corporate savings. Corporate savings are really down to very low levels in terms of GDP to three, 4% of GDP from eight, nine, 10% of GDP. And this is because the growth expectations have collapsed. Now, and why growth expectations have collapsed is really that's the feedback mechanism that's really where we got stuck because of the political equilibrium, which reduces growth and reduces reforms, reduces growth. And therefore this goes back to lower savings rate and, and lower, low growth. And you, got, you get back into this, this negative feedback loop. I think that's my much understanding of the situation. <coughs> Thank you. I will stop here. OK, let me just add a couple of things. So I thank both of you for your wonderful uh, comments. And um, Mohammed Ali, I wondered if you, I, I didn't get the reference. It sounds, this one I'm not familiar with, the one about the history of Tun Remind Tunisia, you. Tunis being so large back in whenever. I'd, I'd like to get the. Uh, that Jared uh, Rubin, I think it was Jared Rubin. Jared, yeah. oh, Jared Rubin. Rubin, okay. Yeah. Um, great, thanks. I'd like to look that up. I can use that in my courses. Um, so uh, on the on this as aspect, I think it is interesting that you brought up about homogeneity, maybe having you know some. They're not always totally pro things, but I, I sort of agree with Mustafa's uh, uh, sort of saying, well, it, it, so well, there may be some advantages of it, but, but the disadvantages in terms of conflicts and other things. I do think that uh, your, I liked your comment about the small size and its relation to Tunisia being small and coupling the small size of Tunisia with the problems of the region and uh, and the the fact that the region is also non mostly non reformers at least in the compared to the East Asian experience so I think that has a lot to do with it the entrepreneurship I uh, and the loss of the French uh, but that shouldn't be I wouldn't have thought that would be such a long term. Uh, effect that, that I mean the problem was that Tunisia was doing relatively well early on even after the loss of uh, after the French had left but the problem has been more recent and therefore I think uh, we need to look 
deeper. And that's something I'd like to look into is about entrepreneurship in recent years and what, what the problems are. There's, you know, really good data and sources now on entrepreneurship and starting up and uh, try to analyze what seems to be the problem there. Uh, the education, the lack of opening up of education, but I think the most serious aspect is what most of it emphasized about the mismatch of uh, the education not going to the right places and certainly not going to the private sector, higher education going more to the uh, public sector or now to unemployment, and especially in the case of females. Um, so I will uh, stop there. I think that point about the climate change and water I think this really is a serious problem for Tunisia and helps explain uh, part of the problem. So thank you very much. And, and I, I must say that uh, both Mustafa and I have appreciated, Mohammed, your work on the, on, the, on the COVID and its impact on Tunisia as well as relative to other countries. And uh, for Layla on your wonderful work on non-tariff barriers to trade, which I think is a big issue. And, and I think that's gonna be very important in, in opening up Tunisia to, especially to Sub-Saharan Africa trade, which I think is going to be extremely important as we look ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. And thank you, Jeff, by the way, for uh, answering one of the questions, which is uh, on uh, uh, education. Uh, one of our uh, audience asked about uh, your ideas about the differences between education experience in Tunisia and the rest of the world. So you, I think, answered that. Questions are not coming through. Uh, I don't think we can uh, cover all of them, uh, but um, let me uh, summarize a couple of them. Uh, one or two of them are about the short term. What can be done, should be done uh, in the short term. I think, to be fair, your book is really not about uh, current or immediate challenges that uh, Tunisia is facing. It takes a long-term perspective. So I'm not sure if you want to uh, offer any uh, specific thoughts briefly on that. But um, but um, um, there's a very interesting question uh, which touches an aspect uh, you mentioned in the book. Uh, you acknowledge the fact that the so-called uprising or Arab Spring in Tunisia came as a surprise. And we have a question um, from Mark Raffino, who says, what about donors and international institutions like IMF and the World Bank? They supported the Ben Ali regime as they were, were they or are they part of the problem? Any thoughts on that front? <laughs> yes, to me, that's right. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> yes. Uh, let me just make a short comment on the short term, uh, on the short term, what to do. Uh, I think my, my, my point on this one is that, uh, of course, there are short-term issues today. The short-term issues are really the public finance issues and the debt problem, that, that's the main. But, uh, but besides that, uh, the short term cannot be fixed without a long-run vision. So my view is that the short run cannot be fixed if you don't have a long-term vision. 
And this has been missing and has been badly missing in Tunisia and will continue. And Tunisia will not start getting out of its troubles in of the short run if it does not have a long, long run vision. And part of those long run visions are some of the issues that Mohammed was meaning about the climate change and, and digitalization and all of the issues that are changing the global landscape today already have an impact. We are starting to see the we're leaving the impact of this long-term factors now today as we talk on water as well as on digital digital economy and so on now on the uh, role of donors and the national organizations i think okay um i think uh i think yes uh, i'm sure the international organization played played some role first let's let me uh rem, uh, you know record some facts Actually, uh, during the last uh, 10 years of the Ben Ali regime, not the 10 years, uh, more, the 20 last years of the Ben Ali regime, the, the IMF was not involved. The IMF, there is no IMF programs. So IMF was not involved and uh, cannot be blamed for anything. Uh, it could be blamed for, for many things, but not for any uh, choices that were made during the Ben Ali regime. Uh, as to the World Bank, the World Bank continued to be uh, very heavily involved. And the experience of the World Bank has been uh, actually um, mixed in, in many ways. The World Bank continued to support the regime, but uh, the World Bank was critical of the regime on many, many, many ways. If you go back and read the, uh, uh, the reports of the World Bank, uh, they were very serious, uh, you know, um, uh, issues were raised about governance, about uh, not only about policies, but governance issues. Uh, the World Bank talks about governance, doesn't talk about politics. But governance was, was made as a major issues. And actually the World Bank intervened at different points. It even canceled some of its loans to Tunisia because of governance issues in terms of corruption and uh, crony capitalism and so on. So, but on the other hand, the World Bank continued to support Tunisia, uh, even when it was going in the wrong direction. So the experience is met, there is some responsibilities uh, in some sense, but I don't think uh, one can say that the World Bank was not uh, aware or was not raising those issues, uh, both explicitly as well as, uh, you know, uh, in less uh, open, uh, open forum uh, on, this, on this one. Great. Uh, some of the questions actually touch on details that uh, are well covered in the book. And of course, uh, uh, I hope having listened to this fascinating discussion, you'd be encouraged to try and get uh, obtain a copy of the book, which is in incidentally available at 20% discount, thanks to Routledge. Special deal for participants in this webinar tonight. Details were entered in the chat area, so make sure you uh, look up. One question is, uh, I think you can uh, answer this perhaps quickly because it's well covered in the methodological uh, chapter, is why did you choose China, Indonesia, Korea, uh, Malaysia, and Philippines uh, plus Thailand as a comparison? Uh, any thoughts on that? Quick ones, maybe? Well, I guess uh, we wanted to have a variety of countries and uh, but I, so we, you know, we ruled out uh, Japan was not one of our countries that had a longer history and so on. So we wanted them to be somewhat comparable to starting their development during the period under study. And 
so Japan was ruled out, and then we took, you know, a, a variety of countries, uh, and uh, we felt that they were, you know, representative of that region. These were the more or less the uh, countries that were pointed out to in the original book world. I guess it was a World Bank book that sort of talked about the success, the great success of East Asia and the Asian economies. And so many of these countries were those, but we had, they weren't, weren't all just China that started late, but uh, Korea started a bit earlier, but, but nevertheless, there were, you know, successful countries for the most part, but not, not all of them as successful. We didn't want to just focus on the two or three that would be the stars. Let me add one, one we, we did not include Singapore because uh, we thought Singapore is really has gone way beyond uh, any other countries in terms of uh, transforming and so on. And, and we, um, as small states, Singapore and, and Hong Kong, we, did, we felt that they are not really relevant as a comparators. Uh, Taiwan is really the issue whether we should have, but Taiwan, the problem with Taiwan data were not available on a comparative perspective on all issues that we wanted to discuss. Therefore, we did not include Taiwan because of the data limitations. Great. I'm being very selective. As, uh, as I said, questions are now coming through, uh, although we are uh, approaching the end of the session. But let me um, uh, highlight one question from Aus Laban. I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Um, it's stated that there's no shortage of uh, good ideas, and you mentioned the economic vision, uh, the necessity of a sound economic vision. Uh, what about change acceptance within the population? Great ideas are usually there, but it seems it's the implementation that is lacking. Is that you? Do you agree with that? I mean, in highlighting institutional failure, is that something that you subscribe to as well or not? Um. I think uh, I, I think Leila mentioned a little bit the issue of beliefs and, uh, and and one one can add whether Tunisians are more prone to accept change or not or whether they are more conservative by nature or less so and I think um, I tend not to uh, to be uh, a fan of such explanations and uh, in terms of cultural beliefs as being constraining the behavior of people. Uh, cultural beliefs change do change quite rapidly if the circumstances, you know, allow. I think uh, the uh, people will accept change and adapt to change if they if you project to them something that they see forthcoming. You know, Tunisians in the 60s and 70s went along with Bourguiba, even though he was introducing huge, the changes that were introduced by Bourguiba in the 60s and 70s, you have no idea how deep they were and how strong they were. And people went along. They accepted change, they adapted and so on. But when they don't see where you are going, when they don't see the vision, when they some these projections in the future, how this is might impacting them, they will not go along with you. I think the acceptance and change is not intrinsic, is not a, a characteristic of the people. It's really something that the policymakers can shape by producing a vision and selling that vision and bringing people along that vision. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, I think uh, we should be wrapping up. Um, uh, we have uh, gone slightly over time. Uh, I would like to give each one of you one or two minutes. <laughs> I know it's not much, but if you have any final thoughts while we are wrapping up, please. 
Go ahead. We go back to Mohammed Ali. Let's start with you. You were the last to speak, so <laughs> last one first. Yeah, just uh, thank you very much for, for this very interesting uh, discussion. And I think uh, th there is a lot of work to do, but this book kind of gives an outline of what you have to do uh, in terms of research in, in the MENA region in the next uh, 10 or 20 years. So many, many ideas coming from this books and research programs. So I hope uh, we'll be delivering some interesting like uh, things coming after this book. Thank you. Uh, Leila? Yeah, thank you. Well, um, yeah, uh, indeed, I mean, there's a lot of food for thought uh, in terms of research. Um, also, it's a great book to use uh, in my classes, and thank you so much to both of you. I, I hope actually that will be um, a shorter version of the book that will be audible to policymakers because I think they need to pick up some ideas and maybe they will use them for the, if we have new political leaders, of course, for their um, visions. Um, and uh, that's it. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Jeff, would you like to offer some uh, concluding thoughts? Okay, I, I, I do think that this, uh, that this vision, this is key to if Tunisian policymakers and society gets together to have this clear vision of the future growth. That will, and, and I think that's important because in the, in the immediate time, there's a lot of policy uncertainty, quite understandably. Uh, so having that vision and the one other thing that i i would hope that could be done would be to to have uh business associations play a more positive role a, as they have in a number of other other countries that they can they can like like dealing with those obstacles that i mentioned before uh that if business associations focus on how to help firms overcome those obstacles obstacles domestically from government regulations or from trade or whatever it is how the how how business associates can play a helpful role in that process great thank you very much and over to you for the final word <laughs> uh, let me thank uh, everyone and uh, you hassan in particular for everything and for the uh, leila and mohammed uh, i wanted just to, to emphasize one point which i really uh, I think this book is about Tunisia, certainly, but it's for me, it's it's a much more than Tunisia, actually. Uh, I think we tried, I, we tried in the book to kind of draw from the Tunisian experience, which is very specific in the following sense, which is a country which did seem to make lots of things right, but it almost makes it in terms of success to develop, become an upper income country, but did not make it. And this really, uh, you know, it, it's really a country which was like on the threshold and trying to understand why this country did not make it compared to other is really interesting intellectually and interesting for the development economic, uh, for development economics. And I think this is, book is about that. It's trying to understand, uh, to kind of open a way to understand better this because we, we know all of kinds of, 
you know, looking at policies and this and that, and, and this has not been really very satisfying. And we thought that by having a very comprehensive view and review of experience of such a long period of time might be interesting. And, and I think we might have uh, been successful in many ways, but probably not in some other ways. But at least I think this opens uh, a new window or not a new window, but a different window that can be explored to understand what's what's going on and, and how development works actually by the end of the day. And that's what we want to understand. Thanks. Absolutely. I fully agree. And I think this is a very good uh, example of uh, how we all stand to learn from looking across to other regions, uh, this uh, level of comparative study, especially for those of us who are focused on, on the MENA region, uh, we shouldn't forget that there's actually a lot to be learned by looking at and comparing and contrasting our regional uh, countries' development experiences with uh, other parts of the world. And I think in that respect, you've done a wonderful job. Some of the questions are actually encouraging you to write a, a sequel and a follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> well, for that, we have very good publishers. Uh, I want to end by quoting our series publisher from Routledge, uh, Mr. Peter Southern, whom I mentioned before, uh, because I do want to thank him again. He says, just to say that he's very pleased to be the publisher of this book, in his view, and he's echoing your words, Mustafa, this is an outstanding book relevant to all economies, not just to Tunisia. So, and I fully agree with that. I also want to thank uh, all panelists and our speakers for a very absorbing um, session, all in the audience. Uh, my apologies if I could not cover all the questions uh, given the limitations of time. And special thanks to colleagues in the LSE Middle East Center, uh, Nadine Al-Manasfi and, of course, uh, Robert Lowe, who's the deputy director. Uh, I hope this will be the beginning of uh, an exciting chapter of collaboration between uh, HPKU here in Doha, where I found my new life after years at SOAS, University of London, <laughs> which is how most of you know me and associate me with uh, since 2019. Uh, and... Uh, we hope uh, to be able to run very uh, many uh, similar sessions in the future. Thank you very much and with all best wishes. Goodbye.